Hello and welcome once again to episode 65 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So uh, there's been an update in the Apple sphere this past week regarding the App Store and that is that some apps in both South Korea and the Netherlands will now be able to accept alternate payment methods. So yay, they won. Uh, they've they've yeah. defeated the behemoth that is Apple and Google, and they can now do whatever they want, just as they always wanted, those pesky app developers. <laughs> um, although I don't think it's still quite as clear-cut as that, am I right? Uh, yeah, so there, there's, a f- <laughs> there's a few things you need to keep in mind. If you're in Netherlands, <laughs> only if you're a dating app or you're shipping physical goods, as has always been the case. Uh, can you offer alternate payment methods? You'll have to apply for an entitlement. Um, and this is sure to make things super complicated because if you're a dating app in more than one country, that ain't going to work. It's only for the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, and you need to pay Apple their cut just on your own on your own uh, invoicing system, I guess. They're going to send you an invoice and say, hey, uh, you told us that these many users uh, gave you money. So here is our our appropriate cut and you need to pay us. Uh, and yeah, you can continue using in-app purchases and you don't have to do anything. Uh, but if you want to do it yourself, totally fine. Have fun with that. Uh, just like platform fees, please. So yeah, you're that's... still paying the 30%. It doesn't matter. Oh yeah. You're not getting that's... one. <laughs> that's but crazy. You, the freedom of choice, Spencer. That was what we were going for this whole time. Yeah. That's, I mean, Epic would have been totally fine with going through PayPal but still giving Apple the cut. It's just not running through the Apple, the app store. That's, mm-hmm. that's what that's really, what wanted. yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the same for South Korean developers. I think it might be just games. I don't know if it's just games. It might be like the whole app store, uh, but they can, they can soon do the same thing uh, where they can accept alternate payments and pay Apple their cut separately because yeah, that's definitely simpler and uh, a good outcome oh, yeah. for all of this. Yeah. Of course. I saw that. I, I think this must be related, but maybe not, uh, that Fortnite is back. Oh, no. Fortnite is back on the App Store through uh, Microsoft's cloud gaming service through Safari. So, no, this isn't related. Um, oh, it, was it that one or was it the NVIDIA one? I, I have or very maybe it was loosely the NVIDIA kept one. track. Yes, yes. So, I mean, they're they're skirting it, which is, you know, interesting. But I guess that's a way to get back on the app store but i wish they just solved the or not <laughs> solve it but just settle the the issue in general and i don't know it, i mean this is like such a non uh step forward that it doesn't even matter right mm-hmm. it, it definitely it definitely <laughs> feels like the people who made this ultimate decision have no idea how like anything on the app store works and they They've yeah. taken like the the worst opinions possible to construct this outcome, uh, because a solution that would have helped everyone is just make it illegal for Apple to say you can't link to your own website from inside the app when like any situation occurs. Like, sure, you don't want to do in-app purchase. Fine, don't say that they need to have in-app purchase in the app. Just make a link that goes to a website out of the app and then the app can do whatever or the website can do whatever it wants like apple would have no control over any of that 
um nor should they have any control over any of that and if you had forced them to do that and then they say oh you still need to play as the platform fees then that would open up a can of worms for apple but if it's stuck within the app then sure why not the platform fees right um so yeah bummer bummer um on a similar new uh like vein of news i think there was uh, the settlement for the U.S. app developers, whoever those yes. people are, uh, for this mysterious case that doesn't seem like anyone really knew they were getting themselves into, uh, are now entitled to some money for whatever reason. Um, mostly because, like, uh, I think a bunch of lawyers got 30% of the money. Um, oh, something yeah. about 30% seems very common in these scenarios. Uh, but yeah, you can you can now go ahead and uh, put your name in the pot to say you will never uh, go against Apple ever again, and they will give uh, you like one to uh, thirty thousand dollars somewhere in that range, depending on how successful you are. If you are super successful, you get thirty thousand. If you're not very successful, you get like two hundred fifty bucks. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's a thing. If you are planning on suing Apple in the future, don't take that because. Uh, you you sign your life away uh, at that moment but uh for everyone else that does not ever plan on suing apple because they're incapable of doing so uh free money i guess so yeah or if you've been an app developer for a long time free money if you are a new app developer i don't think it applies but yeah yep i got an email i i saw the email a couple days ago about that yeah, so it seems like a lot of people are saying that it's being underreported so do like cross-check with your actual numbers uh, before signing anything, I guess. I don't know how you can complain anyways. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that's now a thing. So uh, if you're a U.S. app developer and have been for a while, then do look into that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we can end the sarcasm that this, about this whole segment because yeah. it, it's, it's pretty ridiculous, uh, all things considered. Um, so on to our main topic, uh, when we're designing software, an important set of things that come, that doesn't really come up very often, but is super, super important is redundancy and fallback. So we thought, uh, what better day to talk about them, uh, than now. Um, so these are not super common, as I said, in the app development world, um, but they are super, super important. Think of, for example, your car. If your car has a computer in it and that computer crashed, you don't want to also crash. Uh, that is a bad a bad situation. So it's really important to think about these things um, when you're designing software because although you might not be designing software that could potentially kill someone, like a car, um, you could, by accident, lose the user's data um, or do all sorts of things that uh, would have less than ideal outcomes. So it's kind of important to try to think about how you can avoid those situations um, and how you can make things better for your users. Yeah, for sure. The first thing that comes to mind is like um, right now I, at work, I'm working on, um, we, we have a way to like back up uh, users project their you know, uh, video projects that they're, they're editing. Um, and so we're trying to like make it more robust. So like that kind of from a user sense is like redundancy. I guess we're not really, you know, it's not code redundancy, but we're making it so that, you know, if, um, I don't know, the user, uh, accidentally deletes something, they have a backup to go back to or something like that, or, you know, they can throw it on iCloud or whatever. Um, or another one is we have, um, a couple 
methods of, of exporting. So sometimes for whatever reason, our, our rendering pipeline and exporting pipeline can fail. And so we have kind of a fallback to go to, um, you know, if, if in whatever, for whatever reason, something fails, which is pretty uncommon, but I've seen it before. So you've got, you know, I guess a software redundancy side for the user, but I suppose you could also have uh, redundancy on the code side, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as as you brought up, backups are an exact like the perfect idea of what redundancy is. You want yeah. multiple copies of stuff uh, so that way you don't lose it um, when things go down, like go bad. Um, and as you said. Code-wise, you can have redundant code paths that may do the same thing, um, but if one of them fails, the other can perhaps succeed, especially when you have a flaky subsystem that you're working with. The most common one is the network. Like Everyone mm. kind of codes an app against the network, and that's the flakiest of flaky subsystems. Like You have no yeah. idea what's going on on the other side of there. Um, you might send uh, a request, and that, message, that request may have been received, but you never knew that it got received and vice versa. So you can definitely get down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out like what the best way of building a handshake that's like, there's no chance that of any confusion, um, but it is a lot of work. Um, and that's why it's kind of important to build upon existing work that is out there, like TCP, for instance, will redundantly uh, make sure that if a request doesn't get there, it will send it again and make sure that uh, things kind of stay connected um, and most importantly, let you know if they don't uh, stay connected so you can do something about it. Right. Yeah. Another one that came to mind is like DNS, right? You've always got a primary and secondary DNS. And so redundancy is kind of baked into everything that we do. And I think, you know, for the sake of redundancy, you've probably, like you said, you've got to have things like being able to retry um, a request or maybe retry um, an export or whatever it is and being able to kind of handle that gracefully. So I think maybe a part of that is, uh, I don't know how to say this, like have, have good enough handling of potential errors that you can either know when you need to make something redundant or at the very least um well yeah i suppose you know if you can't fix something that is this very kind of um you know once in a blue moon type of bug being able to either handle errors or log out where that's happening and then trying to figure out is there a better way that i can do this or maybe uh, like we're talking about here another separate redundant way of doing this so that you can have like two separate implementations do the same thing and hopefully one will cover um, the other when it fails. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a classic example of what you're bringing up with like error handling is uh, when you show an error to the user that says, please try again. Yeah, That is like the most useless error to show to the user because what is great at trying again? Computers, right? You know exactly what the user <laughs> did, how they did it, how they got to that point in time. Um, and you can lose that bit of information by abstracting things away so many times that you have no clue what the user was doing uh, to get to that. Or you can build it into your abstraction to just automatically retry if something doesn't work, right? Um, yeah. You can go ahead and try one, two, three times uh, to make sure that the user doesn't have to stop and pay attention to what is actually happening. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you need to kind of take the Apple route of don't show any errors to the user. Um, and instead, you can go ahead and um, make sure that the user's experience is kind of not perturbed for intermittent things, but they are told when the software really can't do anything about it. So um, ha building in these redundant um, calls might be beneficial at multiple levels. It's just something that you need to consider as a developer. Yeah, that makes sense. Um... Yeah, I mean, if you've got some catastrophic error that you just can't really, the your app can't really recover from on its own. And like, what comes to mind is like Git, right? When you try to merge something, sometimes there's a merge conflict. It'll, I mean, probably not retry to merge things. I don't know, maybe it does. It actually but... tries several strategies. It tries one oh, strategy, does that doesn't oh. work. It tries a different strategy. It does exactly that. It tries to do it transparently in the background to see what kind of strategy is going to work best for the particular code that you're dealing with because if you think about it code comes in all shapes and forms right um it can be intelligent about oh you're modifying this function versus that function so this extra curly brace is not like related um so it can go ahead and identify that and that's what it does it does some basic parsing of the code that you're writing to help it with those merge conflicts so that way um it doesn't kind of do something silly because if you think about just merging two text files, you can end up with some very silly results if all you did was increase the indentation on a bunch of lines, right? Um, that's like where Git kind of falls apart um, mm -hmm. if you use it naively. Uh, but it thankfully has some fallbacks in there to kind of take care of those situations and think about those different situations that you might throw at it. That's cool. I didn't know that. Um, okay, so it does that. And then if at the point where it's like, okay, I've, I've exhausted all of the options that I have, then it's going to say, hey, the merge conflict failed, or the, the merge failed, you've got a conflict, fix it yourself type of thing. So that's maybe a perfect example of alerting the user, but not like <laughs> saying, okay, uh, this failed, we're going to try another thing, or do you want to try another method? It's just like, we'll run through as much as we can and then let you know, um, when it's essentially catastrophically failed and you can't, it can't recover from it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, an another excellent point where like it's good to build in these fallback scenarios is whenever you're saving user data. So uh, oh. one very common thing is to send information to the server and have the server save that like state, uh, basically. Um, now, sending information to a server it takes eons from a computer's point of view. Um, and anything and everything can go wrong in between. Uh, so oftentimes, if you are building some sort of caching layer as well, it might be better to save to disk first, which can be much, much faster than communicating with the server. Make sure that's good to go. Then try communicating to the server. And then if the user quits the app uh, while the request is still coming back because something is slow, uh, then you have plenty of opportunity to kind of make that request again in the future if things go wrong. Um, so that's, that's I think, it's important to think about the order of these operations that you're doing them in, um, because if you did the opposite, if you sent to the server and then once the server got back to you, then you saved it, then you might have lost everything if the user decided to quit your app, which is super common nowadays when users kind of go into multitasking yeah. and then swipe everything away. Uh, they are They are actively killing everything. Um, and your app has no opportunity to do anything at that point in time. So 
Um, I almost wish Apple would detect when this is happening and just be like, sure, we quit the app uh-huh. um, and we didn't actually do anything. And I feel sometimes it does this. Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed when you like force quit mail or something and then you go back in, a screenshot of mail still comes up and it's still thinking mm-hmm. for a little bit. Um, <laughs> and then it crashes again and then you relaunch mail a third time and then it's like good to go. Um, so if you've ever noticed something that is like misbehaving and you force quit it and it didn't really force quit, I, I get the feeling that that's what's actually happening is Apple didn't actually force quit something when you said, Hey, go away. Um, and it's just kind of keeping your intent in mind. And then if it Mm -hmm. actually does seem like it's not doing anything, it might kill it on its own and then let you bring it back up. But I feel like it could do that process a little better. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I wonder if it does kind of talk with like Cordata, for example, if they are using something, um, you know, first party like that to say, you know, quit the app, but give us time, but maybe not on iOS. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, It'd be really nice though. I agree. I've definitely um, not really considered uh, or had to consider, I suppose, um, you know, that, that order of operations of making sure that things are saved I mean, it's sort of like we've, we've talked about like the one, two, three backup strategy or three, two, one, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure that it's saved perhaps both locally and uh, on on the network, wherever that needs to be, uh, just in case. And, you know, I, I suppose as as app developers, we are the stewards of our users' data. And so we need to kind mm-hmm. of be very uh, judicious and uh, careful with how we handle that and you know i i know that i would be devastated just the the thing that takes me the most time in any app is like editing these videos so if you know for whatever reason the app crashes and i lose my entire edit that i've been working on for an hour or two i would be super bummed if that was only saving wherever you know in the network or whatever and it's you know not local and i lose it or whatever so um due to those order of operations saving before yeah uh saving to the network before the disk or, or however it works um definitely i mean maybe a lot of apps don't really have any sensitive data or maybe i i suppose i should say important data but i think really it's not hard to save even small amounts of data right i mean you could go the core data route and set up a full, you know, manage object and get your, your, um, uh, your, uh, now I'm blinking. Like your, like your model relations all set up and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could, if it's just a little bit of data, maybe you just save it to a property list or something. I mean, you've got a bunch of different options to save it locally. And so it, I, I don't think that should necessarily be a barrier to entry for if you are saving things to a backend somewhere, you could probably also save it locally fairly quickly, especially if you're using something like Codable, because you can serialize that into JSON very, very easily and save it to disk. So Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be a hard thing to implement if you're only saving to a network, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm Mm-hmm. And and this topic of like building out redundancies and fallbacks, it's not simple. Um, it's definitely something that you have to put a lot of thought and energy into designing well. Um, and although I, I'm tempted to say, hey, it's optional if you're learning about like making apps, like you don't have to do uh, this. 
But it's not really optional because if you break your user's trust a single time, that's it. Mm-hmm. That they will never use that you they will never continue using their app. They won't trust it. Um in fact. Uh and that is like the one thing you don't want to do to people that are giving you money is to break their trust because they are the ones that will continue being your customers in the future when you have different products and stuff like that. Um, and it only takes once, like thinking back, the only times when I like had an app that I loved to use every day, uh, and then I just stopped using it was because it broke my trust in some way. Um, and this is coming from someone who understands how it's all put together. So imagine, imagine a normal user, they're not going to blame the network for uh, (laughs) something like going wrong, they are going to uh, curse at you and like pull you apart in a nasty worded email uh, because it's going to make them feel better about like everything that they just lost. Um, And like you want to avoid that those situations as much as possible. And although it takes extra effort, although you might not get any noticeable payoff for it. In fact, the best payoff is no one is ever going to mention it ever. Um, that means it is silently working in the background, right? Um, and that's that's something that you need to consider when you're kind of building out stuff that's going to take care of your users' data in some way. Yeah, it's sort of like a thankless job, like the best, I don't know, compliment is the one that isn't given, right? Mm-hmm. And somewhat like uh, tangentially, redundancy is actually something that's quite common in like human language uh in fact you might see this all the like you might have always wondered why do i need to accord the tense uh and the person or the the gender throughout the verb and the nouns uh, or the um like uh number i'm forgetting all the terms of course it's been ages but um (laughs) I'm sure everyone, like English has this, where if you have plurals, you need to make sure that the plurals match up. Uh, but like French, we'll multiply this by three different stages. Um, and same for many other languages. Some languages don't have this accordance, but they have different rules for other kinds of things. Um, and there's a lot of redundancy in the language. And you might have always wondered, well, why is that redundancy there? Well, it's there to reduce ambiguity because if someone doesn't hear half of the first word, because it turns out communicating by like speech is kind of inefficient um we need to have that extra redundancy so that way the other person can pick up signals here and there and rebuild the entire thing um and that comes through in programming languages as well you might have wondered why do i need to mark this function as mutating it knows i'm mutating it like it Mm. sees that i'm adding like the compiler even knows i'm mutating why does it need me to type mutating like what's the point there well it's all about communicating your intent because if you did not mark it mutating and someone accidentally makes it mutating you don't have any surprises there that all of a sudden now that's a mutating method you the other developer will have to mark it as mutating and therefore consciously realize hey i'm making a big change here um maybe i should reconsider this um so that's something that programming languages have a ton of uh, of redundant keywords that you might not think are super necessary, but really help um, not the compiler. It's not there for them. Because again, the compiler knows that, you. hey, you forgot to add the keyword. Right, yeah. Uh, you It'll silly developer. Uh, it knows exactly what the problem is. Um, so it's not for the compiler. It's for the developers that are going to be uh, reading this afterwards. And the promise that you as a developer... 
are building out in your library for other developers because they are kind of assuming that you're telling the truth. Um, so yeah. those, those keywords are really important there. Um, so I, as an example of like a redundant um, system, I wanted to definitely bring that up. Yeah. Um, something that um, kind of on in a similar vein is uh, like documentation, right? Especially in, in kind of objective C Swift land, we are, you know, pretty uh, liberal with the amount of words and characters that we have in our variable names and function names. And we try to describe as best we can what something's doing. And yet uh, we still should probably document things and be even that more uh, sort of crystal clear and redundant in, you know, even if our method name is 50 characters long and it explains more or less what it's doing, uh, you can kind of be even more uh, redundant in a good way and describe what each variable does or what each parameter does, you know, what the kind of basic thing is. Dimitri um, talked, uh, showed us, uh, let's see, it was, I don't know, sometime this week or last weekend, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, he used uh, the uh, for uh, the looping, uh, what did you call it? Sorry, the notation for loops? I don't remember at I, all what you're talking about. <laughs> When you had like two for loops nested, and you actually you like wrote some documentation to oh so so uh, uh, block labels, I believe they're called yeah or not block um, scope labels. labels. Anyway, um, yeah. So like if you have a loop, example, you can right? give it a label. Um, right. And uh, as Spencer's saying, if you have nested uh, loops. What is the break referring to? Is it referring to the inner loop or the outer loop? Um, especially if you have like a switch statement in there and you have three different cases. The first case is breaking the inner loop. The second case is bring, breaking the middle loop. And the last case is breaking the outermost <laughs> loop. Um, sure, you might give names to your outermost and middle loops, but also give a name to your inner loop because now it's not going to be ambiguous at all which one you're breaking. And if you're reading that code, it's going to be super clear um, like how that is all, uh, working. Yeah, exactly. So documentation, I, I feel like is a form of redundancy. I don't know if that really counts, but uh, no, that, definitely. And I, I want to bring up too, it's important when you're documenting your code, don't repeat yourself with regard to what the code is doing. So if you have some code that, uh, says, uh, turns the turbines, do not say turns the turbines in your documentation. Sure. Like describe it with different words mm-hmm. as best as you can. Uh, to, so that way it's really clear what it's doing. So you have the method signature that's describing it and you have the documentation that's describing it in a different way. Because then the user who is reading that can fill in the blanks of their understanding where they didn't maybe understand it. Maybe you can say, uh, generates electricity for the subsystem to be able to do this. And then turns the turbines is like, oh, so it does this via turning turbines. Um, mm-hmm. You can go ahead and fill in that information uh, afterwards. So if you are, and you should be, documenting your code, you should definitely, definitely, definitely do it in a way that kind of describes the situation in a very different way. Um, gives an example in a third different way, like not the obvious thing. Like everyone can figure out the obvious example, right? Uh, give a more complicated example. Why did you design it in the way you did that's going to help uh, help in those situations, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, totally. Um, this is kind well, we, we had a conversation in our, in our work Slack group about, uh, kind of the, I don't know if it really matters too much, but it was an interesting kind of idea, which was, um, the, the language that we use in documentation. So as an example, like, do you write full sentences or do you, um, you know, try to, I can't exactly, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. It was basically just talking about, you know, how do you kind of word out your documentation? So he was saying, um, basically, you know, are they just lines of text? Do you actually write a full sentence? Like, and kind of the conversation turned into, personally, I just write them as sentences with, you know, full on punctuation stuff, because that makes sense to me. And I, I was just kind of trying to go for like, if I'm writing documentation, I'm trying to make it make the most sense. But I kind of just wanted to see like, do you do that? Or do you have, you know, I guess a preferred way of writing documentation? Or do you think it, it doesn't matter as long as the goal is just uh, kind of understandability, if that makes sense? Yeah, so I think that it's important to consciously write documentation in like full sentences with good grammar. Um, because that's going to make you think a little harder about the whole situation. Um, and it takes, again, more work, but you become less ambiguous in that situation. Um, so if, if you don't have good practice with this, well, then like there's never, never a better day than today to kind of start practicing, uh, writing, but also like read other people's documentation, decide for yourself what, documentation is clear to you and what documentation doesn't help you at all um mm -hmm. like the my least favorite documentation right up right up there with no overview available is apple's documentation where you have some okay. sort of of like long objective c thing and the documentation text says this exact same thing with spaces right like yeah. that is completely <laughs> utterly yeah. useless uh, it is worse than no overview available because it means that someone checked off the box of I documented this and they're never going to revisit it again. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I I don't know if that was going where you where you were uh, yeah. bringing it up, but I think it's super important to practice writing and to write as if you are teaching someone for the very first time who has no idea what your code is doing, what it is doing, so that way it can help them jump in and most importantly it's gonna help you jump back in when you need to revisit it especially if it's something complicated um i recently i think as a part of the same code that spencer was bringing up uh with the loop labels and this is not public code so you're never going to see it um but um i i i shared a screenshot with with spencer and everyone else of like all my code for it um and the vast majority of that code was comments it is of underlyingly simple algorithm but it's a loop and a loop and a loop uh, and those loops are starting at like very complicated indices so that way it's not actually like an o n cubed operation um and it is very careful in how it's doing that but if you just read that code and it's 10 lines long you're not going to understand a thing that it's doing um, because it's very carefully put together and it's very carefully assuming very different things along the way mm -hmm. um so all of the code at every line, I have a paragraph that is going through, okay, the situations that this code is going to hit are this, this, and this, and this. To make sure of this, I have these four asserts that are going to make sure that if I'm like working with this and I 
tweak a setting, I'm not going to break those assumptions by accident, like 10 lines down um, than where I thought I was. Um, so I very painstakingly laid out, mostly for me, like all the situations I'm going to hit getting to that point um, and what kind of assumptions I need to be aware of and everything I need to reconvince myself that this is like what I actually wanted to do. So it's not the case where like the code has a bug in it. It's the way of thinking that the code is representing that could have a bug in it. Um, and that is the thing that I'm kind of guarding against as much as possible by having as much documentation as possible. So it's not like upfront documentation for the method because the method is doing a simple thing. Um, but it's how it's doing that, um, that would like sidestep, uh, what the user that wants to use a method is thinking about if I were to explain it all in there. So it's actually inside the method. Um, but it will go, it does go into excruciating detail, um, to make sure that I don't break those assumptions going forward because they're really, really fragile and easy to break, but they need to be for it to not be an egregious operation uh, to begin with, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just got me thinking, like, as someone coming into um, a, a, an app that has hundreds and hundreds of classes and files in, the, in LumaFusion, it was so daunting for me to jump in and be like i don't understand any of this where do i even begin and one thing that was super helpful was in uh, quite a few places that i kind of got started in there was great documentation sometimes it was a little sparse maybe at the top of the class just explaining the class in general but sometimes there were things like you're saying where they're maybe inside like inline comments inside of the function itself uh for complex uh you know whatever it, complex logic uh, that's super helpful, and I maybe that's sort of a form of redundancy in that it's becoming redundant, maybe not for you as the writer of the code, or maybe it is, which often case is the case, which, uh, you know, when you come back two months later, but also just for everyone else, if you leave, you've got some redundant kind of backup fallback um, information there to, to help keep it clear for everyone else. So definitely... Um, you know, just we're, we're shilling documentation-driven development as always here on Code Completion. <laughs> it's very, very important. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, if, if you're joining a code base, like this is unrelated to what we're talking about, but it is related to documentation. If you're joining a code base for the first time and you don't know what to do because it's like it's very daunting, an excellent thing that you can do is find a place where there's no documentation and try to write documentation for it. Um, and ask, ask everyone else on the team, hey, does this... Does this seem right? Um, so in between the, the small tasks that you may or may not do, you can go ahead and say, hey, I'm adding documentation to this class because I'm like trying to understand the code base and get someone else to like proofread it. And that's all they really need to do um, because they can tell you at that point in time, hey, that is like the wrong assumption um, and they will catch you there. Um, especially if you are like tagging the person that wrote it, you can always look it up and and the Git history to see, like, hey, who wrote this method? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So y you can directly target them um, on Slack and say, like, hey, uh, does this look about right? Um, there was no documentation, and I'm trying to understand things better, so I wanted to add some. Uh, but if my assumptions are wrong, please please say something. And uh, then it's on them, because it's their code with your documentation, and that's going to cause some problems. So they, they are more likely to 
uh, review that code if you're in a code base where people are not really reviewing things, not writing, really writing documentation or tests. Um, so that tends to, to really help. Yeah, um, kind of not again, not really related to redundancy, but kind of along the lines of what you were talking about. You know, you can look at the top of the file and see created by whoever. But if you go into where you can uh, choose the canvas or mm-hmm. like the, the map the and everything. The three dots with the circle. I think no, that's... now it's like... Oh, it's, it's not like that anymore, no. The five lines. No, it, it changed. <laughs> I think Xcode 12. But just on kind of the top right-ish corner of the Click file. Click one of where those buttons got... and keep trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where you've got the file ribbon. Anyway, on there or it's... Let's see, uh, Command Shift Control A for the author's uh, little tab, and it, it just shows up where the mini map is, and that will go into uh, literally line by line if needed. Who uh, it just pulls up? I'm sure the blame uh, um, uh, an individual. We don't file. call those I'm... blames anymore, Spencer. We right, need to sorry. be supportive of our coworkers. <laughs> we don't blame right. them for writing bad code, even though it has their name right next to it. We, we call them the authors. Author. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless of gets the calls it a blame, yeah, whether it's a bad or a good thing that they wrote that code, I've mm-hmm. used it just to say, okay, like I like I've got um, someone that's refactoring kind of a bunch of the way that we handle colors, for example. Um, so I was working in kind of tangentially related color things, and I knew that he didn't write the class originally, but he was the one working through a lot of it because I saw him in the authors, not the blame. So I asked him, like, hey, is this going to interfere with your work? And it's a handy tool if you're working on a team with others. So just wanted to bring that up. Um, and I guess I guess a final point that we can make um, as far as why it's good to do this uh, in terms of, like, writing redundant code um, that does this exact same thing but in a very different way. Um, a great one that I can think of, especially if you are writing... Um, what's i'm 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 drawing a blank on on the term here but if you are writing server-based uh software and you have multiple layers of servers that are involved you have one that is directly communicating with the internet and one behind it that is doing something else if you need to do the exact same thing don't have the same implementations on both of those because if one implementation has an issue it's going to have the same issue on the other one. Uh, and if someone can use that as an entry point on the first, they will be able to use that same entry point to the second. And you've lost any security benefit from having two layers of servers, two physical layers of, of systems that are communicating with each other. Um, so in those situations, really, really consider writing everything with either a different stack or using very different uh, methods that decode JSON um, just so that way you have some built-in protection uh, for things you can't control, like ultimately. Yep. Um, by making it a little harder, it's not going to be iron-proof protection, but just like vaccines, you want to have vaccines that protect you at multiple layers. I, I think they also call it the Swiss cheese uh, kind of protection method, where each layer has a different set of holes, oh, and yeah. okay. <laughs> as you layer them... Like the holes are, some of them are going to overlap, but then little by little, it kind of covers each other and you have to navigate ever more uh, indirectly to kind of get all the way through. Um, so if you do build multiple layers to something, whether that's for security or for something else, uh, really consider if you have the same kind of code at each of those layers to get rid of that and to swap it out with something slightly different. 
Um, whether it's like the super basic things, like don't have Nginx on every single layer. Use Nginx on one, use a different forward proxy on the other one, and so on and so forth. Not saying Nginx is going to have an issue. In fact, it's generally rock solid. But just having these different layers is going to help. This week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Weekly Swift Exercises. Learning Swift, there's no substitute for practicing. There's dozens, literally dozens of people Fernando's mentored through different programs, and he's seen it time and time again. After you learn the basics of programming, you slow down because learning through experience is demanding and painful. Increasing your confidence is key, and there's an easy way to do it. Practice. Uh, Fernando's weekly exercises help you practice concepts like closures and protocols while implementing actual features like dark mode. It's free to join. Besides the exercises, Fernando sends one to or two articles about learning Swift. Some are technical in nature, but most of them will help you uh, in your career by teaching you things like best practices, working as a team, and getting ready for your first job. Thanks again to Fernando and Weekly Swift Exercises for sponsoring Code Completion. Go to twitter.com slash Swift Exercises today to learn more. So lately, I've been loving my MacBook Pro, as we have all been, and this is to be clear, the M1 uh, Pro and Max generation of MacBook Pros, uh, the good ones. Um, and, uh, I especially like its webcam because it does quite a good job at, uh, one, having a higher resolution webcam than previous, uh, laptops. And number one, I don't blame them for not having done this earlier because if you've ever looked at Apple's laptop casing, it's very, very small. It's nowhere near as big as an iPhone, which can support having a 4k camera. Um, here there's really no room for it. Uh, so, uh, they've tended to have 720p cameras, and now they have a 1080 camera. Um, and generally, it's excellent. Like I don't, I don't think I would have anything uh, to complain about its quality there. The only problem is the way it sits on my desk, especially because of a monitor on top of it. Um, I am looking way above the camera, so it's as if I'm looking up here, um, and the camera is really low. So you mm. have like a, a a very clear view of a mountain of Dimitri that is like looking <laughs> over you. Um, and uh, that really makes me look like a Titan of sorts. Uh, and if you watch Attack on Titan, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> Force perspective. It makes them look bigger, even though uh-huh. they're not actually that, that big. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's un, it doesn't make me happy in that way. So I, I felt a little bizarre using uh, that computer uh, mostly because my main monitor, the Pro Display XDR, doesn't have any camera because apparently that's a pre- feature f- pros want, not having a camera, um, because all sorts of reasons. They put tape and stuff on it. I don't know. People sure. are weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that is to say that I've wanted to get a camera for it. So uh, for today's uh, mini review corner, I have uh, the Logitech Pro, a magnetic webcam for Apple Pro Display XDR. That is the full title of this darned little thing uh for everyone else it is uh the logitech uh brio 4k line of cameras it's the exact same thing um except apples which i'm like wiping off because it's super uh, super shiny um apples has less stuff or not apples this is still logitech's but the one for the pro display xdr has less stuff on the front it's not as loud um as the other mm-hmm. ones um which instead of having like semi-reflective uh, markings here, which they're not really white or anything. Um, they're like bright white, um, and it's a little obnoxious. So uh, this one has that, and it also has a magnetic base uh, that like swivels. So I don't know if, how well you can see this, but you can really like orient it downwards 
um, or yeah. not. Um, so that works quite well. Uh, the colors are not what I'm used to from like iPhones and Apple stuff in general. Like I would say Apple has a very uh, opinionated choice in like coloring for their cameras. Um, and this does not match it exactly, but it does not make me look like an alien either. So I'm not really complaining. Um, it's just not what I'm used to, I guess. Uh, so, uh, that would be my only complaints. However, uh, it being a 4k camera, you have a lot of options for like field of view. Um, you like, you can zoom in just like this one is right now, which is coming off of an iMac pro. Um, and you can get a much wider shot if you wanted, which makes you really minuscule and the opposite of a Titan. Um, I did not pick that version because I would look like a, a Smurf, especially in the shirt that I'm wearing right now. (laughs) Uh, so, oh, I just noticed it goes back and forth, like angles wise. So I guess that's, I don't know if it's supposed to do that or if I'm like breaking it or something. (laughs) Um, it's probably got some tilt or swivel. Uh, and in the back, it has a USB-C, which plugs in directly. Like, they give you a cable that's exactly the length that you need to plug into Pro mm, Display XR, nice. which is super, super neat. They also give you a longer cable to go uh, to a Mac Pro um, if you're in the situation where the graphics card does not have display stream compression or anything like that, which I would guess you need uh, USB-C, like, 5 gigahertz, gigabit per second speeds uh, for this guy. Um, but, yeah, in terms of, like camera settings you can download an app from logitech's website called camera settings no logitech no brio in the name it's just called camera settings so if you need to open the app you need to look for camera settings on your computer um which is wonderfully confusing if you have multiple cameras um but you can configure everything there and it just kind of remembers it from that point forward so um i have thankfully not thought to think about it since then um so yeah uh, that's my review of the Logitech Pro Magnetic Webcam for Apple Pro Display XDR. I think there's a 4K somewhere in there. If you don't want the Pro Display XDR one, uh, you can get the Logitech Brio 4K mm-hmm. Pro. I don't know what order those keywords are going to come in, but you'll find it. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. So it's um, what two hundred dollars? Yours yeah. was two hundred dollars. Yeah. On Amazon, it's like one hundred and sixty dollars right now. So. I, we were talking about this the other day. I mean, honestly, for a 4K camera, that's not bad. Uh, mm-hmm. I think my like mine's also a Logitech, but it's just a 1080p, and I think I paid about a hundred dollars for it a couple of years ago. So uh, I think the technology has really come far in just the affordability. So mm-hmm. I don't think I need a 4K camera, but also it's not like if you don't have one, it's not that much more expensive to go all, you know all out 4K and then kind of future proof yourself a little bit Mm -hmm. and um it has like actual autofocusing lenses and everything like you can Mm -hmm. have a blurred out a naturally blurred out background which you cannot get um with apple's cameras uh so you have a lot of control there that you just don't generally have and it's usually a lot less finicky than buying an actual dslr and mounting it somewhere and getting Mm -hmm. special software like it works in quicktime it works in everything that can just get a camera input uh, so yeah, if you if you need a for, a better quality camera for these remote days that we will forever be stuck in, then uh, I I handily recommend uh, this little guy, especially if you have a Pro Display XDR, which are awesome. Um, and yeah, nice. 
uh, on the on the topic of remote days, I um I guess this doesn't really apply to you, but here in in Utah, we on very very on yeah on it's it's pretty rare, but on occasion, I did have like snow days on you know in in when I was in school, uh, but being in Utah it was also pretty rare because we were used to snow. But sometimes I had a couple days in high school where there were actual snow days because it snowed so much. Um, and I was passing uh, one of the high schools by my house the other day. Um, it was actually probably about a month ago. Um, but it said snow day dash remote learning. And I was like, oh, that that's over now. You can just, you <laughs> no know, more snow day. just get on your, your laptop and have school now. So the times they are a changing. Definitely. As a kid, like I grew up in Southern California for all listeners. Uh, there's no such thing as a snow day. Uh, here. Um, and as a kid, we would always like hope and wish, uh, for, uh, this moment to like one day come, uh, because we've always like seen in movies like snow day, yay, no sure. school. And we're like, that doesn't exist here. We've always, there's like never no excuse to go to school. Um, like if you're in LA, there's like a traffic day, but then everyone's late. You still have to go to school. <laughs> a traffic day. <laughs> no, no escape. Um, so yeah, <laughs> thank you for bringing up those wonderful memories. I'm sorry, I've just brought up sc- emotional scars. No, not at all. Uh, so as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buniel. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. I want to convince you to watch Don't Look Up, uh, which was... Let's do it. uh, Which was, I think, the most unexpected movie that I've watched in recent times. So the premise is some scientists uh, discover a comet, uh, and that comet is headed straight for Earth in six months and like 14 days. It is between uh, five to ten kilometers wide, which is bigger than the ones that wiped out than the one that wiped out all the dinosaurs. Uh, so it is like end of world, world uh, ending, yeah, yeah, world ending uh, comet. So as as the two scientists uh, kind of like redo their math ten times, they're like, okay, like this is going to be serious. Uh, so they uh, they do, make some phone calls with the university. They get in touch with. Uh, someone at NASA who's kind of in charge with uh, identifying these kinds of bodies and they get an audience with uh, the president. Um, And so far, like I am of the opinion that the movie is going to be the typical like asteroid disaster movie, um, which I'm down for. There's always fun to be had uh, with disaster movies that like take science fiction Uh, like elements to kind of build up the idea um however uh it quickly goes downhill so uh you think things are gonna go great so they get to the presidential office they have to wait quite a while um and you hear the word madam president so you're like oh like a woman's in charge things are gonna be Mm -hmm. like very different in this situation 
No. So the the president is basically a replacement for Trump. Um, like their whole family oh. is the cabinet. The head of NASA is an anesthesiologist or something. Uh, and <laughs> oh, currently they're trying to get in a cowboy that had like s- sexual stuff with like who knows who, uh, in as a Supreme <laughs> Court. Like it's an exact parallel, uh, for sure. what is going on. Um, and they don't care about the comet or anything. They're like, oh, good for you for finding one. They named it after you. How cute. Um, so they basically shoo them out. Um, and now they, and they, the, the two scientists, they, and the, the third one from NASA, they say, okay, we're going to leak this to the media. So they try mm-hmm. to find a TV show. Um, and they, they get one to talk about it, but it's like a reality TV show where like they don't really care. They're like, oh, like how big is this comet? Is it going to wipe out my ex's house in New Jersey? Because I really want it uh-huh. to, uh, kind of thing. Like no one has any urgency about this. Uh, people are more interested in the, the influencer that went right before. Um, so like everything kind of like falls apart for any hope of like redirecting the comet or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I don't want to go f- too far in because the, the whole movie is excellent. Uh, and it goes way further <laughs> than what I just described. That's basically, uh, the premise, but it, it is such, it was such a refreshing take on the disaster movie that they didn't need to like bring in aliens or anything like this. Uh, mm-hmm. they had all the elements there to create the perfect disaster, um, all the way, like with everything that we have, like they didn't need to invent new technology. It was everything that we have today. The disaster just plays out as if it were, uh, scripted from the beginning. Like you could tell this is not going to end well. Um, and it doesn't end well. Like that's, that's, that's about it. So, um, if you haven't seen Don't Look Up, it is not what you expect in terms of just a disaster movie about an asteroid hitting the earth. That is just the cherry in the top. Uh, the whole movie is not about that at all. Um, in fact, it has more parallels with our current, like, situation with COVID, <laughs> without COVID, uh, being there, which, uh, it's definitely influenced by the times, I would say that. Mm. Um, and if you do watch it, definitely stay, stay for the mid-credit and post-credit scenes because they, they are the cherry on the cherry on top, I would say. Nice. I'll have to give it a look. That sounds awesome. So. Moe's in for the, um, in the mood for a good movie yeah so i haven't been really many movies out lately it seems i don't know uh, i haven't watched something about making lately. it being hard to make movies or something. yeah i don't know what it is man but that's cool that they um it, it's got like leonardo dicaprio and yeah and, um I, it's got like a good cast mm-hmm. it, it was cool. it's definitely not one of those netflix movies that like are low uh low budget or anything like that mm-hmm. it, it was properly made the the vfx of the asteroid hitting excellent um, very funny because I we watched even though it came out a while ago we watched it right as there was news of an underground volcano uh, like oh, erupting yeah. in the Pacific Ocean uh, and you can see the volcano erupting like mm-hmm. on the globe uh, to that scale um, and the asteroid hitting the Earth at the end of the movie spoiler alert um, it it was much bigger than that but it looked pretty much the same thing. <laughs> Like it's a similar similar level of disaster, uh, just times ten or times a hundred, um, and yeah, a very a very refreshing take on the disaster thing. This is nice. the disaster plot. That said, I, like I do it. want to watch Moonfall. Moonfall sounds fun. I don't know what Moonfall is. Moonfall is about the moon falling to Earth. 
No way. Yeah, way. I never would have guessed. They That's they cool. have they have all oh, the gravity effects. Yet. No, it's not out yet. They have all the gravity effects where the tides go super high and everything. Oh, um, nice. So yeah, proper disaster movie, just like the other ones of like San Andreas, like ridiculous. Um, this one, however, is not that. Uh, so it's it's the refreshing. You don't you don't have to watch a city kind of break apart uh, in this two hundred million dollar VFX shot that um, like they used in all the trailers. Like that is not that is not the point of the movie. Uh, the point cool. is everyone not listening. Um, and the tagline "Don't look up" uh, turns out right. to be a pretty funny tagline in the context of the movie. So yeah, good stuff. Check it out. As will I. And that's all I have. All right. See ya. See ya.